I'm John Lewis, and you're listening to 360 Degree City, a podcast where we talk to people who are working to make cities better. Our hope is that after each episode, you'll start to see your own city from a slightly different angle. Welcome to What's Next, our latest season of 360 Degree City. The COVID-19 pandemic has brought a devastating toll on our world, with over 5 million people dead from the virus at the time of this recording. That would be the equivalent of the entire population of the city of St. Petersburg, Russia, or the Canadian province of British Columbia being wiped out. As a result of this virus, since early 2020, the way we socialize, work, and move around our communities has drastically changed. As the COVID-19 virus spread throughout our towns and cities, those of us who were fortunate enough to have roofs over our heads stayed home to protect ourselves and our neighbors. Offices and businesses shut, changing many commutes from a long drive to a 30-second walk from the bedroom to the home office. Local parks transformed into more vibrant living rooms where families and friends sat in socially distant circles to celebrate birthdays, anniversaries, and graduations. Local governments became more nimble, allowing patios to pop up on the streets to help restaurants stay afloat during trying times. The buzz of international tourism quieted, allowing locals to reclaim their streets in busy tourist cities. Some have traded their small inner-city apartment for larger suburban homes. COVID-19 has also revealed inequities and the deep cracks in our systems. The health and economic effects of COVID-19 have disproportionately impacted poor communities, communities of color, and developing countries. And this only begins the list of changes that have occurred. Now, as vaccination rates slowly increase and we navigate the reopening of businesses and borders, we're curious what's next for our cities. What will the post-pandemic city look like? How will COVID's impact take shape in the long term for our mobility, public spaces, private spaces, supply chains, economies, and society? So in this series, we're going to sit down with a number of folks to talk about what's next for our cities. Today, I talked to Dr. Karen Lee to explore what's next for public health and healthy cities. Well, thanks, John. Um, So I'm Dr. Karen Lee. Uh, I'm an associate professor. Uh, at the uh, in the Division of Preventive Medicine, which is in the Department of Medicine at University of Alberta. Uh, I also direct a project called Housing for Health, which is a five-year project funded by the Public Health Agency of Canada that is working to improve our housing developments uh, for active living, healthy food and beverage access, and social connections. And so we're, we're working with, uh, you know, private and nonprofit sector developers um, on uh, three pilot developments. Um, And we're also, of course, working with the cities and towns uh, in which these developments are embedded to uh, improve the neighborhoods surrounding these developments as well. Uh, There's also... Okay, wonderful. Uh, Okay, so maybe let's start with um, January 2020. Uh, interesting timing to release a book about cities and health and whatnot. So <laughs> your book, Fit Cities, yeah. Uh, yeah. your your book, uh, Fit Cities, uh, is is uh, you know about health, wellness, and and cities. Could you maybe share some of the the key themes uh, from your book and and um, you know as a as a result of so much interesting work in so many interesting places. Yes, thank you, John. Um, Yes, the book came out in January 2020 called Fit Cities, and it's really about the important role that our cities and communities play um, in helping us to be healthy. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so we know historically, right, that, um, you know, when we had issues like cholera, tuberculosis, when they were rampant, functionally, um, you know, our cities were, the way they were built, designed, operated, maintained, really functioned to propagate some of these diseases mm-hmm. in the uh, 19th and early 20th centuries. So, for example, before we had good sanitation systems and clean water supplies, right, cholera epidemics were quite um, would occur quite frequently in our cities. Mm. And, you know, once we actually put in place clean infrastructure and uh, clean water infrastructure and sanitation systems, these epidemics went away. And, you know, essentially, uh, in most cases, they never came back. Right. Um, right. And so today, I know today we're living in the midst of the COVID pandemic, but you know, uh, if you look outside of the pandemic, but actually also impacting the uh, pandemic, uh, because we've done such a good job addressing issues like sanitation, even uh, building ventilation, um, safety issues, our leading causes of death, healthcare costs, and you know, disability from from illness now are chronic diseases. So diseases like heart disease and strokes, diabetes, cancers, and actually, you know, the burdens of severe um, COVID and mortality from COVID are also impacted, right, by the underlying burdens of these diseases. So we know if you've got these chronic diseases, they are risk factors for having severe COVID, Hmm. right? Even our annual flu epidemics, right, our annual flu outbreaks, they're greatly impacted by these diseases as well. So you're more likely to have uh, to be hospitalized from from influenza and to die from influenza yearly if you have these underlying chronic diseases. And so, you know, today we live in an age where even our infectious disease epidemics cannot be fully dealt with if we don't think about the underlying burdens of chronic diseases that are so prevalent now. So, you know, these diseases um, that I'm talking about, heart disease and strokes, um, chronic lung disease, diabetes, cancers, these are now the leading causes of death uh, globally, even in the developing world. And they result in, you know, by World Health Organization data, over 40 million deaths per year. You know, that's over 70% of deaths. And these deaths, or at least the premature deaths, are largely preventable through these shared risk factors of physical inactivity, unhealthy diets, tobacco use, uh, social disconnection and isolation. Mm -hmm. Um, Mental health issues, of course, are also impacted uh, by these risk factors. And mental health issues have also become a huge burden of um, health morbidity globally. So, Mm. you know, it's estimated that, you know, one in 20 people suffer from depression every year globally. Mm. Um, So um, anyway, so these are, you know, we've got aging populations, of course, as well, right? And so, you know, what, what has functionally, I think, also been occurring over the last couple of decades has been more and more science, Um, you know, research being done in the health fields, the planning fields, the transportation fields, 
showing us that um, how we design our cities, um, so if we design them to be fit cities, that we can, you know, impact um, people's physical activity levels, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. people's ability to eat more healthily, um, get safe and healthy beverages, um, and um, also be more socially connected. Um, and when we actually do that, we can impact not just one disease at a time, but all of these priority health conditions at once, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Additionally, there are co-benefits, right? Like environmental sustainability benefits. So I think the most common, I think, sustainability benefit that we talk about is, you know, if you undertake active transportation, like you walk or you cycle or you take transit, which usually starts or ends with a walk, yeah. that that's, you know, better for the environment. But actually, if you think about some of these other risk factors as well, they're also synergistic. For example, if you're eating more fruits and vegetables rather than highly processed, highly packaged foods, right? Often they generate compostable waste, not waste that has to go into a landfill. Right. You're drinking safe tap water, right? You're not, uh, you know, I think often the debate has been around tap water versus bottled water. But if you think about all those soda pops and sugar sweetened beverages, they also all come in cans and beverage, uh, cans and, uh, and bottles, right? Mm -hmm. um, so the generation of waste and transportation miles are also impacted by things like what we eat and drink. And often the healthy option is the more sustainable one. Um, recreation, right? When I was in New York, the New York uh, State uh, Department of Environmental Conservation actually was projecting that um, TVs were going to overtake refrigerators as the main source of household appliance energy use, right? Mm. And so whatever we could do to shift people to recreation that is more physically active, more socially interactive, could actually be beneficial for us uh, in terms of household appliance energy use, as opposed to televisions. Like we know that, you know, during things like heat waves, one of the reasons we get the blackouts that we do is everyone sitting in their homes, watching television and turning on the air conditioner to full blast, right? Mm -hmm. So whatever we could do to get people into communal spaces where they're maybe more actively recreating, it could be, you know, cooled joint spaces, um, but there could be these benefits as well, uh, environmentally. Um, so those are just, I think, and then even, you know, uh, I'd read a statistic that said that, you know, uh, escalators, each escalator running 24 seven can generate something like four car loads of carbon dioxide per year. Hmm. So, you know, very often we talk about sustainable buildings, um, but these elements like you know, putting in too many escalators as opposed to encouraging stair use for those who are able to use the stairs uh, and then ensuring that there's elevator access for those who actually uh, have disabilities or uh, might be carrying huge loads, you know, because for these folks, the escalator isn't helpful. Escalators also are extremely expensive for building owners because they break down all the time. So there's all these kind of benefits, right? And just to speak about the economic benefits too and the walkability and bikeability fronts. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, when I was in New York uh, and many of us, 
many of the uh, case studies uh, in the about fit cities is about uh, uh, some of the initiatives that we undertook in New York City during uh, the Bloomberg administration. Hmm. Um, you know, there are also case studies from you know elsewhere, as you've mentioned, in the world uh, that I've um, had the privilege to work on. Um, but I think one of the things that's also highlighted is just the importance of um, of doing things that have these multiple co-benefits. Yeah. And but if we're going to also do these bigger things uh, where health is intersecting with transportation and planning and architecture and our buildings, we also have to work in partnership across sectors, right? right. We can't do it alone. And that's the other piece too, is that for individuals who are trying to be healthier, you know, we know every year at New Year's, at New Year's right? They're making resolutions. People are making resolutions to be more active, eat more healthily, you know, lose some weight. And the reality is that that partnership between what people need to do and what cities and their communities need to do also have to be there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So John, sorry, I go on and on, but I'm going to stop. That's, and... hey, hey, that's why I'm asking the questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I think that's really fascinating about the idea of, you know, if particularly in the midst of a pandemic, you can lose sight of the chronic um, issues and the and the relative. I mean, it, it's it needs to be addressed, and it is. But the the relative um, level of uh, deaths and cost with with those chronic uh, issues every year, and the and the connection to um, to the acute nature of something like COVID nineteen. Um, and I'm just wondering if if when we think about you know those great examples of what would make a city more fit or healthier. Uh, what are some of the lessons that have been learned when it comes to, you know, the, the COVID pandemic and its impact on cities um, specifically? In turn, you know, I th think of, of your mention of communal spaces uh, rather than everybody individual. Anything, any thoughts about what we've learned through the last 18 months or so in terms of um, the need for some of these uh, solutions, you know, park space and to, to facilitate mental well-being is, is, is one of the examples that that's often comes up. Um, but in terms of is there a, is there also a tension of when we're in the situation of something like COVID-19 and, and obviously communal spaces are an area of concern. Any any thoughts on that? Well, I think what COVID, I think, has highlighted for us uh, is the importance of uh, outdoor spaces mm. right? and public outdoor spaces uh, for all to use. And because it's come come through, I think, uh, this pandemic that, you know, these spaces function as spaces where people could potentially socialize safely. So, for example, if you're distanced, masked and outside, right? You can see other people. <laughs> you don't have to be isolated in your own home only, yep. um, right? Uh, and so having these spaces uh, with enough space uh, for people to, you know, run into each other, you mm -hmm. know, in a safe way. I mean, the, the studies show us that having, you know, when people walk around more in their neighborhoods, one thing is they're, they're um, and the neighborhoods are designed for them to do that, their physical activity levels can, um, across studies, have been shown to increase 
by over 160%. Hmm. Um, but in addition to that, these studies also show benefits for decreased social isolation, right? Uh, improved community co cohesion, uh, decreased crime because you've got more eyes on the streets, I suspect. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I think interestingly, um, COVID is showing us that these spaces are also important uh, when pandemics like COVID hit because mm -hmm. uh, these public spaces that we run into each other actually additionally in times like this help, truly do help us to feel less isolated. The transportation components, I think, are also really important, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, in the past, if you couldn't drive and you lived in a car-dependent community, you could take a taxi, I suppose, if you had the means or an Uber uh, or a car share, you know, uh, not car share, like a, a ride sharing service. If you, um, or you could take transit if that was available. Now, during COVID, people were more leery of these uh, modes of travel, right? And so it speaks to the importance of having, I think, amenities near you that you can walk to or bicycle to such that under different conditions, you have choices of modes. Because not everyone, I think, you know, I think as we have an aging population, um, not everyone can drive. People stop driving at a certain point or they're driving dangerously because they have to to get to the places they need to go, like the grocery store. Uh, so even though eyesight may be failing or, you know, um, motor skill reactions might be slower now, people might continue to push um, and continue driving way beyond the point of safety just because they have no choice, right? And so that's not good for anyone, not for the person driving, nor the people on the streets. Yeah. However, if we design our neighborhood such that people can walk to the essentials, you can walk to the grocery store, maybe slowly, but you can get there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can, if it's a little bit further, you can bike there as well. Mm -hmm. You know, I think what we see in places like the Netherlands and, you know, Copenhagen is that when you design bicycle infrastructure to be safe enough for everyone to use, including children and seniors, lots of children and seniors use them, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so I think this notion that, oh, well, seniors can't bike, but they do in other parts of the world where the infrastructure is very safe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think if you're going further, there's the option of, of um, and so I think, you know, when we're thinking about public space, there's the public recreational space, but there's also the public space that functions as a means of transportation, of walking, of right. bicycling, and that can get you to necessary amenities when you can't drive anymore. And mm -hmm. in the times of COVID, you can get there actually in a way that is outdoors and safe and physically distanced from others. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah, and that's that was uh, that was an interesting insight from um, from Mike Lydon when we we ch chatted with him that some of the most um, uh, progressive or assertive or proactive uh, communities um, as COVID was was having a, an impact were the, the the places that had 
plans in place, but they hadn't necessarily enacted them. So they had something ready to go. So it, it speaks to the value of the planning process and, and the proactive nature. You may have developed a plan or a strategy. The resources weren't available, the opportunity, but to seize the opportunity when it's there, it's much easier when you have, you know, a map that says, here's where the bike, bike lanes are going to go rather than create that from scratch in the, in, in, yeah. the, in a rushed way. Right. You know, what was interesting too, um, John, I, saw a I was at a workshop recently and um, there were some folks from the Netherlands who presented and so uh, you know all of those you know wide uh, bicycle paths that were put in place in you know there was a there was a case study shown of a new suburban town mm -hmm. that functionally started building up in the 1990s yeah. And even though it was, it was very new town, very suburban, um, it functionally, you know, most people get around by bicycling or transit. So they had, you know, a regional rail system, a bus rapid transit local system, mm -hmm. connections between those systems and bicycles that could be parked at those transit stops and tons of, of course, bicycle infrastructure, you know, off-road if uh, the speed limit was uh, above 30 kilometers per hour and on road, if it was less than 30 kilometers per hour. Mm -hmm. So it could be shared if it was a slow enough, safe enough street. But what was interesting was the comment also made about how these, this additional bicycle infrastructure was utilized and can be utilized by emergency vehicles, right? Oh. And so, not only did they not have traffic congestion because, you know, so many people uh, traveled by bike or by uh, transit, but in the case that there was, there were all these alternate routes for emergency vehicles, mm -hmm. right? And so I think we think about COVID as clearly this kind of emergency type of situation, but we have other types of emergencies and we're seeing more and more of them, right, through climate change. Right. You know, the fires, the, you know, more and more uncontrolled and extreme wildfires. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, weather events. Uh, and, you know, one of the issues that happens during these um, climate change types of environmental disasters as well as evacuation. And, right. I mean, how many communities have we seen like where you have lineups of vehicles and because there's only kind of the, they're relying on the one or two highways out of town mm -hmm. or, you know, the only the vehicle infrastructure, uh, things get clogged up, right? And evacuation is actually slowed um, and there are no alternate paths. And so, you know, the building of multi-use trails and a good network of uh, bicycle um trails could function potentially if we planned properly as mm -hmm. additional additional escape routes the other is if you had you know bus only lanes for bus rapid transit if you had rail systems that were also good those become all alternate ways that communities can you know utilize for evacuation even on the building front john you know um there was a report generated by the FDNY, um, so the uh, Fire Department New York, after the 1993 World Trade Center bombings in New York that looked at what factors 
impacted egress and speed of egress, uh, speed evacuation from, from the building. And one of the key factors they found was people's unfamiliarity with the stairs, right? Because people didn't know where it was. Because, you know, I mean, we're supposed to all be in these fire alarm drills. But very often, you know, if you have meetings outside of the office, the fire alarm drill could be occurring and you're out of the office, right? And so because people often don't use the stairs because we no longer build the stairs to be used except in an emergency. Ironically, when that's the case, it's the least usable in an emergency because people don't know where it is. Once they get into the stairwell, as was in this report, because they were unfamiliar with the stairwell, you know, uh, it was harder for them to navigate, particularly if the, uh, the power went out and it went dark. Yep. They had no idea, right, what the configuration was because they never used it. Mm-hmm. Um, stairwell doors, some doors would be locked and then that would actually cause people to panic. Yeah. So, you know, I think uh, initiatives that could promote, you know, people being more active, like the cycling on multi-use trails, the uh, cycling for com- commuting, the transit systems for commuting, uh, the buildings uh, that promote stair use and, you know, active mobility. I think these are all things that actually have implications for us in sort of acute emergency times, whether that's COVID, like, you know, we've been asking people to not use the elevator and use the stairwell if they can during COVID as well, right? To decrease, Mm -hmm. you know, being enclosed in one tiny elevator space. For sure. But also in other emergencies like evacuations, right? Right. Um, And so there are all of these benefits, I think, uh, in addition to economic ones, like, you know, more walkable and bikeable communities, if you increase transit to an area. So in New York, when I was there, you know, pre and post uh, some of these transformations of our pedestrian spaces, our public spaces, um, data would be collected on how retail businesses were doing, mm-hmm. how developments were doing around retail vacancies. And very often these would improve right, when you improve pedestrianization, cycling infrastructure, um, you know, transit infrastructure to that area, or, you know, you created, you know, more public spaces for people to linger in those areas. Um, Yeah. Lingering and then they loosen their wallets and the businesses are happy. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, I think, I think the way we design, right, John, has been very structured around intentional buying as opposed to incidental buying. You know, you happen to be in the area, so you'll pick up a coffee. You happen to be in the area and you see something in the window and you're like, oh, I could buy that, Mm -hmm. right? As opposed to, I only drive to the big box store because I have something to pick up. And then after that, I drive home because I don't even linger in that area and walk around the other stores because you can't even walk to the other stores. Yeah. Yeah. You're taking your life into your hands if you, if you do it. Yeah. When, when, when I was uh, working on a, a, a revision of a zoning bylaw many years ago. Now we <clears throat> were talking about commercial districts and, and uh, we had some community um, community members come in for focus groups and we were talking about big box developments. Uh, and it was hilarious. She said, um, you know, I, I hate these things. I only go about once a week and I drive just to the stores I need and then I drive home. 
And it's like, well, yeah, that's exactly what they're designed for. <laughs> I mean, do you, do you, but it's not a satisfying, yeah, right? So right? not a satisfying so human experience, just yeah. a action. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine if people were, if we actually created pedestrianized spaces mm -hmm. uh, in that sea of parking and people were to linger and walk around, like, you know, first of all, they get the walk in second of all, uh, you know, they'd be potentially like those stores don't even have windows, but they could be window shopping if it had windows, right? Uh, and um, people might pick up things that they weren't intending to buy, right? Um, instead of like, I drive to that store, like you said, and yeah. I'm I'm out of there right after, right? Get the thing and get the thing and get out as quickly as possible. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I really love this idea that's that you've been mentioning a number of times, this idea of thinking in terms of co-benefits. Mm -hmm. And so when we think about COVID as a potential uh, to be a positive catalyst mm -hmm. uh, in a lot of ways, um, mm -hmm. you know, what are what are some of the things that you can foresee um, of how what, what COVID may have catalyzed to help cities evolve and better support the physical and mental health of, of residents? Yeah, well, I think, you know, we're seeing cities think about their public space and their public outdoor space mm. and how it can be utilized for people's mental and physical health, right? So I'm in Edmonton now. And for example, over the past couple of summers, uh, there have been, you know, more shared streets streets that were, you know, where an extra lane was uh, blocked off for mm -hmm. pedestrians and cyclists to use because, you know, the sidewalk alone was uh, too narrow. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's catalyzed uh, some of these, uh, you know, these open streets or um, street closures to vehicles that uh, we've been talking about for years and that that hasn't necessarily occurred in many cities. So many cities, I think, uh, have thought about, you know, the needs of their residents for more public spaces for moving, for, you know, being able to get outside and even run into their neighbor in a safe way. And uh, we are seeing some of these initiatives catalyzed um, I think the key thing is going to be, you know, people love these things. And when COVID is over, the question is, what have we learned that we should continue yeah. and not necessarily revert back to the old ways? I think, you know, some of these pathways, often they were created for recreation, but I think we could better potentially plan these pathways with active transportation, safe transportation needs for mm -hmm. people who can't drive or don't have a car, right, for any reason. Um, so for example, those paths that people are using to walk or cycle for recreation, can we also ensure that those paths are created on routes that lead to needed amenities like the grocery store for, let's say, the person who can't drive anymore? Yeah, or sure. who doesn't drive or who could never drive in the first place, right? Um, okay, so last uh, kind of uh, COVID-related question for you here. When we think about the 
profound impact that it's had on the world and everybody in it. Uh, any is there any evidence or historical uh, analogs in terms of the mindset, the change in mindset that it that it may leave with individuals and communities and societies in terms of how they think about um, public health issues and and what those implications might be for for our cities. Yeah, I mean, I think it certainly put uh, public health public health issues into the limelight. Mm. Um, I think you know, as we started uh, when we started uh, talking today, John, I think. As you mentioned, one of the risks has been that, you know, amidst the COVID pandemic, we might forget really about, you know, the other pandemics that are chronic and that are going on now across the world and have been going on for actually several decades Mm -hmm. that are still under uh, addressed. And those are, you know, the chronic disease uh, epidemics that are occurring around the world, right? The, uh, like, like I said, heart disease and strokes, cancers, diabetes. Um, and I think one of the things that we should remember is that underlying severe COVID and mortality from COVID uh, are these burdens of chronic disease, right? Right. And so if we forget about them and we forget about addressing them, then in the next pandemic, you know, there's a good chance that we're also going to get severe morbidity and mortality because Mm -hmm. our underlying chronic disease burdens are so high. Mm -hmm. So I would say that, you know, one of the things we really have to keep in mind is that as we address COVID acutely, we also need to think about, you know, post-COVID and even during, you know, what more can we do to prevent and help people manage these chronic diseases better, right? right. So that at the next the next time we have one of these pandemics, like maybe our burdens of illness, uh, of chronic, underlying chronic illness is lower. Mm-hmm. And fewer people now are at risk of uh, dying and getting severe infection because their underlying health is better. And what we do, I think, post this pandemic to prepare for that next pandemic, like whether it's having, you know, more multi-use trails, more public parks, um, you know, more walkable communities uh, where people can indeed walk to things like the grocery store and places that they need to to live on a daily basis, Um, that those things can concurrently help us prepare for another time in the future when we need to have, you know, that those kinds of spaces again, need to be safe through physical distancing again. Um, But also in the meantime, you know, uh, help to prevent and people to manage those underlying diseases that really threaten them with a severe infection. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, we've also talked about outside of COVID, there are other sorts of emergencies like our weather emergencies that are becoming more prevalent, right? Yeah. Um, like, you know, there's so much we need to do about climate change. Um, but even if we act now and act into the future, I mean, 
it's already begun. And so we're just trying to mitigate. And so, you know, these um, more and more severe weather events, how we build our infrastructure uh, can also have implications for evacuations from these events, right? Sure. So, you know, issues like having these additional, like multi-use trails can function as additional evacuation routes for emergency vehicles. Um, you know, having a viable transit or regional transit system, regional and local transit system may function as additional ways to transport and evacuate people out as opposed to relying only on that one highway out of town, right? right, right. And so I think uh, there are all these implications that really say to us, you know, we, we really must act. We really must move forward. And I think COVID, um, you know, it, as you said, you know, there, the, I think one of the potential positives to come out of it is the wake up call that we really do need to act. We really do need to think about the spaces and designs uh, of our communities. Yeah, for sure. Okay, wonderful. Um, so we just have one more question and uh, something we, we, uh, we ask uh, every guest and it usually stumps them for a minute. Uh, can you share a city that you love and why you love it? <laughs> um, well, I'm biased, I suppose. I have many cities that I love, actually. Uh, maybe I'll name three cities that I love. Um, I mean, you know, I lived in New York City and worked there for uh, about 12 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, I love that city for, I think, what we did to it, I think. Uh, when and you know, I feel very privileged to have been a part of working with these different sectors to improve that city and to improve the health outcomes because of of what we were able to do across sectors in that city. Mm -hmm. But I also love what I love about New York. I think too is the kind of uh, willingness to try new things, the willingness to you know sometimes be the first to do it or frequently, you know. There are risks to that, right? But there are also rewards, right? It doesn't mean, I think if you plan things well, it doesn't mean that sometimes you don't get it wrong, but you have to try at some point, right? Yeah. Um, I think one of the challenges that I've found um, in the Canadian context, I'll say, is that very often we get caught and stuck in talking about something. Yeah. And we don't do enough, right? Uh, sometimes I think we're a bit more timid than we ought to be, mm -hmm. um, you know? Um, but I think COVID has pushed many, for example, cities and local communities to do things and to try things that, uh, that maybe would have taken a lot longer before. True. Yeah. And then, of course, I also love, you know, I love uh, cities like Paris, Florence and part of what you love is the ability to stroll and the ability to walk through beautiful parts of town right uh to walk through you know uh historical structures uh but also newer infrastructures integrated um and so that begs the question of how we ought to think about our own cities too right mm -hmm. like 
where do people go, you know, and what are we building in our communities? Often there's a discordance, right? Because people often go to places, if they're going to a city, they're going to a city where they can walk, where they can, um, you know, potentially like bike shares used tremendously in, in New York City by tourists as well as local populations, right? So people are going to cities where they can walk and bike. People are taking like tours uh, to Europe so that they could go on a biking trip, right? And, um, you know, or people are going to places where they can engage in active recreation, right? Beach sports, hiking in the mountains. And yet when we build our own communities, yeah. We don't think about that, you know, and so in some ways we kind of kill any opportunities for tourism when we build like a suburban car city hmm. because like we ourselves aren't going to those places, right? But we want to visit a different place. Yeah. So, yeah. So anyways, those are some places that I love. Thanks for joining us. And we'll see you for the next episode of this season to continue exploring what's next for our cities. 360 Degree City is created by our team at Intelligent Futures. To learn more about the work we do, go to intelligentfutures.ca. I'm John Lewis. Thanks for stopping by.